Hi Triber, we're back for the next season. Smart Girl Tribe has grown to become the UK's number one female empowerment organisation. We have an event series, a digital magazine, a membership platform and this podcast. What can you expect from us? Interviews from women all over the world who are driving change and pushing the needle forward. From actors to activists to CEOs and conflict photographers to the brains behind some of the world's largest corporations. When you're not tuned in every Wednesday at 6pm, then make sure you're chatting to fellow unapologetically ambitious women in our private Facebook group, the Smart Girl Tribe Society, or sharing our ever so inspirational content on Instagram at Smart Girl Tribe. Hello Tribers, happy Wednesday and welcome back to the Smart Girl Tribe podcast. Hope Virgo is the 29-year-old spearheading the hashtag Dump the Scales campaign, which calls on the government to review the eating disorder guidance delivered by the NHS. She is also an author and award-winning advocate for people with eating disorders. Dump the Scales is a campaign very close to my heart, and what better time than Eating Disorder Awareness Week than to have spoken to Hope. I was kindly sent her book and knew that she had to share her story with you. In this podcast episode, Hope talks about the sexual abuse she endured in the church, which led to her eating disorder, what it's really like to have an eating disorder, what to do if you or your friend suffers from an eating disorder, and how to launch an international campaign and become a motivational speaker. If you or someone you know suffers from an eating disorder, then you may find this episode upsetting or triggering. Firstly, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. Welcome to the Smart Girl Tribe podcast. How are you? Are you having a good day? Yeah, it's nice actually, yeah. Um, the first day at home all week. So oh, that's like, really just, nice. Yeah, like getting admin done and clearing my inbox, which is, yeah, which is fine. <laughs> So we'll just crack on. Can you just share your story with our readers? Um, so I got diagnosed with anorexia um, when I was 17 years old, but I'd lived with it for about four years into the run-up at that time. Um, the anorexia to me was like a complete and utter coping mechanism to everything. Um, it gave me this value and sense of purpose, and it basically just kind of kept me going every single day. Um and when I was unwell, kind of for the four-year period before anyone intervened, I didn't actually think there was anything the matter with me. I basically thought I'd found this amazing solution to life, this one thing that just took me out of that reality of growing up. And it just, yeah, like I said, it just kept me going all the time and made me feel just so complete. Um, and then eventually, when I was 17, at my school got in touch with my mum. I then went to my GP and then ended up being referred to the mental health services. And at that point, I just hated it so much. Um, I didn't know why people were starting to interfere with me. I thought they were trying to make me fat, that no one understood what I was going through. And I was also in like this constant state of denial. Um, whilst my anorexia wasn't caused by bad body image, the body image aspect got so wrapped up into it. And it meant that whenever anyone said, you've got anorexia, this is what the matter with you is, um, I just completely switched off and just thought they would just, like, didn't get it at all. Um, so I spent six months as an outpatient and then eventually uh, hit that complete rock bottom and got admitted to mental health services as an inpatient where I spent a year trying to recover, living in a hospital, kind of learning about food, exercise, and learning to talk about how I felt and to express myself in a more healthy way. Um, and then I'm now 29 um, and have been kind of managing my recovery for the last 11 years since I got discharged from hospital. 
Um, in that time, I've relapsed once, um, but actually when I relapsed, I managed to pull myself back through it on my own with like support from my family and my friends. Um, and I think for me, it's something that I will always have to manage and it will be something that's there. It's something that I manage in an ongoing way, but I know now exactly what I need to do to kind of stay well and to keep myself moving in the right direction with it. So when you first went and you were being told that you were going to be referred to almost as a mental health patient do you feel in your personal opinion that an eating disorder is a mental health issue yeah no I 100% think it is a mental health issue I think quite often we quite often we don't think it is um I think quite often we look at all of the physical aspects of it which is why nowadays it's so hard for people to get a diagnosis but actually when I was when I was unwell it was definitely a mental illness and I think that's that's what it is which is why when you're in recovery your weight seems to go up and change but mentally it takes so much longer for everything to catch up and you have recently written a book which I read and it's fantastic and I'm going to leave a link in the bio for all of our readers to head to how much of your journey did you share throughout the book and how did you come up with the title of it stand tall little girl um so I came up with the title of the book um actually years and years ago so when I was in hospital um I did quite a lot of writing and my older brother actually wrote me this song um he's not a singer or a singer songwriter or anything it was like one of those kind of hobbies of his when he was a kid trying to be really cool and he wrote this song and the title of the song was stand tall little girl and it was a song about me and um it kind of just stuck with me and I think for me it just really resonated with my whole story and with my whole book that like we have to just keep pushing forward we have to keep challenging ourselves in recovery and keep getting to that end point um with regards to kind of my book and how much I share so I do share pretty much everything very very honestly the only thing that I don't talk about in great length in the book is the sexual abuse that I faced when I was 13 um and the reason being is that when I wrote the book I was still kind of going through a whole court case around the sexual abuse and I think I've only realised over the last six months, probably the long-term impact that actually that abuse has had on me in my life. And I've only just started really talking openly about it in the last couple of weeks. It's something that I now feel okay to talk about and think it's an important part of my story and an important thing to talk about. Would you put a lot of your anorexia and the mental health issues that you faced down to that? Or do you think naturally there was something a bit more that was in you outside of the abuse that led you to an eating disorder so I um, I think that I was kind of predisposed to it um I had like a predisposition to developing an eating disorder I'm not sure how much research there is behind that I've done a fair amount of research with my brain and with kind of like my DNA and things but they haven't ever come up with a concrete kind of evidence that actually it is a genetic thing but I do think that I was kind of I had a predisposition to it but I think the abuse was something that just made it kickstart. And because the anorexia for me was all around control and shutting off my emotions and my feelings, it meant that when I ever thought about the abuse or had kind of distressing images about it when I was lying in bed, the anorexia would get me to think about food and calories and exercise. And it just took me out of actually having to process all of that stuff that I'd been through. Um, but I think I think it's probably a number of things, and I think for different people it affects them in different ways, and different things cause it. But I do think that it is a coping mechanism for me that I will have to manage. 
Okay, so when it was starting, did you feel that anything else was playing a particular role? For example, the media. Obviously, now we have social media and we have Instagram. We're inundated with images and models and things like this. At the time, throughout your journey, did you feel then that those kind of images were going and having an effect on you? So I think they do have an, they did have an effect, but only a very minor effect. I think mm-hmm. nowadays we blame so much stuff on social media and it's like kind of like a get out of jail card for the government to just be like, oh, it's because of social media that things are getting out of hand and really bad. And I do think they do have an issue and they are bad for our mental health up to a point. But I think there's so much more to it than that. Um I think where social media has had an impact on me probably more so in relation is in relation to my recovery and so I do have to be really mindful of the stuff that I look at online now and make sure that I'm not looking at stuff that I might find triggering um and I think particularly people who share before and after shots actually that sort of stuff when you're when you've had an eating disorder is really triggering because anorexia is so competitive so I think it's more things like that that I think have an impact on me than I do actually kind of like the more broader usage of social media if that makes sense that's actually really really fascinating because I know a lot of people male and female who have had eating disorders and we're so quick to say when we haven't gone through one ourselves oh you know social media definitely contributes and the media is playing a really poor role in our society when actually you're saying it played a very very minor part yeah and I think I think it did and maybe like I know I'm 29 and maybe it wasn't as round quite as much that we didn't have Instagram when I was growing up um which I feel like when I say that I sound really old (laughs) um but yeah um, and I've never said that before either, so I think I've only just realised that. Um, but I think it, I think it does have an impact, but only, yeah, only to a point. And I think nowadays people know that what you see on social media isn't the reality, because we're all showcasing kind of like our best life on social media. And I do a lot of work in schools, and like kids always are aware of the fact that what you see on social media isn't the reality. And it doesn't stop us kind of subconsciously comparing ourselves to everyone on social media. But I think the more we remind ourselves of that, the easier it kind of is to deal with. Okay, and one thing that I do really want to ask you, almost from a personal perspective, is you were saying that you can find certain things quite triggering. And I've seen a lot online when it says, you know, beware, this might trigger you and things like this. What can we do, those who haven't suffered from an eating disorder, be wary of? What content are we maybe providing or putting out there in the public sphere, if you like, that could be triggering for somebody who has previously or who has currently an eating disorder? So I think the big things at the moment are around diet culture. So we do live in a society that is just so into talking about food and calories and dieting, but those kinds of conversations can be really triggering. So I think it's about just being mindful of those, those kind of those things that you're saying, whether it's you're posting stuff on Instagram or social media about how much weight you've lost or how many calories you're eating or what diet you're on. Mm-hmm. Like that can be really dangerous. Um, I think there's also things around constantly commenting on people's weight. So again, people seem to feel the need to do this quite a bit. And, quite often when we do comment on someone's weight, we don't actually know what's going on for that individual. And so it's important to actually not just look at that individual with their weight, but actually look at the wider person and look at what else might be going on and maybe just don't comment at all. Um, Something that I used to find really, like, maybe, I think it was triggering at the time. I think I could cope with it now, but 
when I used to work in an office, um, I used to find it really frustrating when people would bring cake into the office and then you'd be interrogated on why you weren't having it or why you only eat healthy food or what you're having in your Tupperware. And actually those things when people are making, I guess, making assumptions about you or being quite judgmental about it, you end up just lying constantly about actually why you're not having cake or why you're having that for lunch or something like that. And again, it can make that person feel very, very self-conscious. Um, And then the final thing, I think, is just people who are constantly pushing kind of those exercise messaging. Last, uh, just before Christmas, they wanted to put exercise labels on food packets. And actually, I know as someone whose illness was wrapped up in over-exercise as well, whilst I'm in a very good place in my recovery, I know that I would find that triggering and I would find that very, very difficult to cope with. And I think it's those things that actually have a massive impact on people with eating disorders. And... I know we are in an obesity crisis, but at the moment we're kind of going along with this whole one-size-fits-all model and we're not taking into account actually those triggering messages as well. Can you remember the day when you just knew that you had anorexia? Maybe for somebody listening to this, thinking, oh no, I definitely don't have an eating disorder. How can maybe somebody determine for themselves that they have gone from watching their weight and being a little bit careful to this is actually a severe eating disorder and I should probably seek help? So for me, I only realised that I had something that mattered to me when I went into hospital. So I went into hospital on a Wednesday morning and on the Friday night, I was still in a denial phase about it. And I pretty much spent my first three days in hospital shouting at everyone who tried to talk to me, anyone who tried to make me eat and was basically just being unbelievably difficult. And on the Friday night, this nurse came in to see me and she brought with her these massive pieces of paper and she got me to draw how I imagined myself on one of the pieces of paper. And then she got me to lie down on that exact same piece of paper and she traced around the outside of me. And she got me to then look down at these pieces of paper and the images were so, so different. I thought at first she'd lied to me or she'd somehow tricked me. But actually I had this realisation then that I had something really, really wrong with me. And I think I wouldn't have probably accepted that anything was the matter until that point. But if people are struggling or you know people who are, I think a really, really good way of looking out for it is not to focus on the weight aspect and not to wait until someone's weight is kind of either kind of goes up massively or goes down massively. But it's about looking at those small changes. So if you are an individual who starts to constantly think about food and calories and you can't really concentrate on anything else, that's one sign. When you let exercise or food control your everyday, so in that sense, I mean, yes, you can have a healthy diet. Yes, you might exercise in a healthy way. But when it crosses over into that disordered pattern is when it actually starts to have an impact on your wider life. So maybe you don't go out for dinner with your friends because you're worried about what's on the menu or you don't want to go on a night out because you want to exercise the next morning. And that's when there's an issue that starts to control you. And I think the thing with eating disorders is they kind of can nag away for quite a long time and we justify our eating habits. We look around at everyone in society who may be clean eating or who kind of do constantly diet or cut out various food groups and that normalises disordered eating. But at the same time, that is an unhealthy way of coping with things and as soon as you get into that kind of crossover into that, that's when you should really try and seek that support. Do you think we as a society approach eating disorders in men and women, boys and girls differently? And if so, what do you think maybe we can do to change that? Um, 
so we definitely do approach it differently. I think there is still a huge stigma around uh, boys and men who get eating disorders. I think we still very much think of it as like a female, white girl, middle class illness for a teenager as well. We don't often think older people get eating disorders. And I think the way to tackle that is to get more men to actually talk about it honestly and to talk about what it's like. I think quite often as well with girls is we one sign of being underweight is to not have your periods. But actually, we don't have the same question for that for men. So whilst you might be going to your doctor and your doctor's asking what your periods are like, actually, for men, they don't have the chance to do that. And so a male might be struggling as well in that sense. And I think as well, there's the added embarrassment for guys that actually it is viewed as a female illness. And so maybe men feel less masculine if they develop it. Mm-hmm. Um, recently, I started doing some work with some rugby clubs and they have the other extreme. So it's not anorexia, but they, they're... The guys in these rugby clubs are obsessed with exercising and obsessed with getting bigger and their muscles getting bigger. And that is still an eating disorder. It's just the other end of the spectrum. And I think eating disorders like that are harder to spot because it's more normalised for that kind of, I guess, rugby players are supposed to be bigger and have more muscle. But it's about opening up more of those conversations. And I have to be honest, In when I was in high school, so I moved high school three times. And in the later years, I had two best friends, one had anorexia and the other had bulimia. Looking back, one was really open. She wanted to talk about it all the time. She wanted to talk about anything that was triggering her. She saw a therapist and my friend who had bulimia actually really enjoyed being that size, achieving, I remember her saying, her goal weight. I really struggled. I was only 16, 17 then. I didn't know what to say to them and it was one of those things that even though they would share their stories with me being their best friend they didn't want me of course going to a teacher or bringing it up with their parents so what do you think you can say to your friend who is going through something like this when you look back do you think that friend really helped me by saying x is there anyone in particular who helped you if so what did they say um, so I think when I was at school, people didn't really know what to say again, so people didn't talk about it, and I think I was so secretive about it that people also didn't know how to have that conversation. Um, <clears throat> but when I relapsed in 2016, actually one of my friends, Nikki, um, she quite abruptly one day when we were going out for a coffee asked me if I was counting my calories again, and actually having someone be that direct where you don't have to show any kind of emotion to answer that. It was exactly what I needed to actually basically tell, say to her, yes, I am struggling, but to then find, I guess, to then find a way to actually manage it and get her support without having that emotional support. I think quite often for friends, it's, it's really difficult because you want to fix your friend, and but your friend won't want you to fix them, and it isn't your role to fix that person. And what I always say is, it's about being there for that individual kind of making them know that you're there walking alongside them having that conversation with them when they want to have it but just kind of taking a step back every now and again and being okay to do that which which is really really difficult the other thing I would say that does really help actually and this will depend on where your friends are in their recovery or in their illness but actually thinking about the kind of activities that you do Quite often, people with eating disorders, they'll be too nervous to go to restaurants, or if they're in recovery, they might have a set meal plan, so they won't want to go to restaurants, or they will just have to not be out and about during meal times. And I think quite often, 
we find it hard to adapt to that because like we live we do people like going to restaurants people like going for dinner and it's quite a sociable thing to do but in those situations it's about actually having activities and organizing activities that don't always happen around food and meal times because if we just do them around meal times then people will become even more isolated on their own as well and when do you think maybe the right time is to go and start at least considering seeing somebody I think as soon as you think there's something the matter so I think I think it's essential I think at the moment there's massive waiting lists for therapy it's very hard to get a diagnosis and so as soon as you think there's an issue we have to go and get that support and ask for guidance and see what they can do for us um I also think the sooner we intervene, we can have that early intervention. And early intervention is crucial in recovery from an eating disorder because you've got more chance of recovery, but also you don't have all of those behaviours that get so ingrained in your head and so ingrained in your everyday life. And it means that those are much easier to then crack and break. Okay, and you also, I know you said that you relapsed in 2016. And I also wanted to say if there's anything that you don't want to share that's absolutely fine if you want to pause at any point that's fine as well when it came to your relapse how can you refer to it as a relapse how do you know it was that rather than maybe somebody who's listening to this who has maybe gone through an eating disorder in their teenage years and then thought you know what it's bikini season coming up I just want to get healthy again what I would say if there's someone who's who is kind of yeah, I guess wanting to get into bikini season again, I think it's I think it's very, very risky. So I know that I can never, ever go on a diet again. And at times, I, I really struggled with that, actually. I've just got engaged, and I know that in the run-up to my wedding, I already feel pressure to start losing weight and to maybe change my shape or whatever it is, particularly when you're seeing stuff in wedding magazines about how you should lose X amount of weight before your wedding or buy your wedding dress X amount of sizes lower. And I, I really struggle with that, actually. That, like I do, I find it hard to get my head around that and hard to understand it. But I think, I think there is a difference. And I think, yes, we might want to have a healthy diet, but it's about knowing whether that's the eating disorder or not. And the way that I knew that it was the eating disorder again is because I did start to think about food and calories a lot. I started to want to exercise more than once a day. And I could feel myself kind of going to the gym and not really wanting to go, but doing it because I felt I had to do it. And it wasn't, I wasn't doing it in a safe way. And with eating disorders, and particularly with my anorexia, is it is like this voice in my head. And the more I restrict and the more I cut out a food group or whatever it is, that voice gets louder. And so I know that that's when I'm relapsing and that's when things are getting out of hand. Um, and what I would say, it's, it, it's up to you as an individual whether you want to diet again or whether you want to exercise again when you're in recovery. But it's about having people around you that you can be accountable to and you can talk to. So I know if I maybe start to run too much or if I maybe start to restrict again, I will have people around me who will pick me up on that. And if I respond to them in a really negative way or kind of get a bit secretive or maybe lie about how much exercise I'm doing, that's when I've crossed over into that relapse um, kind of avenue, which becomes much more dangerous. And you, of course, you have opened up about the abuse and you have openly said that you were suffering for years and then you spent 12 months in a recovery centre. You said you were 17. Did you admit yourself or did someone else essentially put you forward? Uh, 
so my heart nearly stopped so I had to get admitted and had no choice at that point about going in um I think how it works when you're 17 is you get told you have to go in and if you make a fuss or kick up a fuss then you'll get sectioned and you'll have to go in anyway but I went in I guess just after I got told I had to go in oh my gosh that's really that's really um sad actually that somebody so young who at 17 should be essentially really vivacious and loving life can get to a point when they're suffering so much that their heart stops if it's okay I would like you to share what your experience was like you know when we think of recovery centers or at least when I do I think of it as quite a clinical depressing place is there anything that you would want to say to break that stigma what is everyday life like in a recovery center so in the hospital I was in, so it was a massive house um, on the outskirts of Bristol where I grew up, um, and there was about 25 of us in there altogether, kind of aged from 10 right up to 18. And so on the top floor, we had our bedrooms, so I shared a room with three other girls, and uh, two of them had anorexia, and one of the girls had OCD. In the hospital I was in, there was only one secure unit, so which someone with psychosis was in, and that was probably the most clinical part of the hospital. We also had one uh, medical room, and in the medical room was where we got weighed, where we had our bloods done, where we had our heart rates done, and things like that. But downstairs in the hospital, it didn't feel clinical whatsoever. There was like a um, like an activity room. There was also like a lounge where you could sit and watch telly. Um, and yeah, it it didn't it didn't feel that clinical. I think some hospitals do feel more clinical because they have kind of more, I guess, extra provisions, or maybe they're right next to a hospital or whatever it is. But mine was basically just like this massive house, and you have a very institutionalized structure. So we got up at seven every morning and got weighed. Um, we then had breakfast at eight and had like a twenty minute window to eat our breakfast, and then we had snacks at like eleven and then lunch. And so we were very, very institutionalised and it had this very, very strict structure on how we did things um, with interspersed with things like therapy. But overall, it wasn't as clinical as I thought it was going to be. And I do remember actually when I got admitted to hospital, I did think it would be like full of crazy people, like people with really messy hair, people kind of running around shrieking or like people who were just on so many drugs that they looked like zombies. But it wasn't like that at all. And it's so funny, actually, because when I go and do work in schools and you ask them what they think a, hosp- a mental health hospital will be like, people still have that like stereotypical mm. image of what it is like. And I think it's that's that's probably partly to, like the media's fault is that we do think that. But yeah, it was it wasn't like that at all. And like we got I don't know, like we wore jeans every day, like we didn't just walk around in our pajamas. Um, so yeah, it was quite. I think looking back, it was the hardest year of my life, and. I don't stay. In, I haven't stayed in touch with anyone since I left hospital. But actually, there were moments when I was in hospital where it didn't feel like I was in hospital. Where you're kind of hanging out with the other people in the in the unit. You've got your family coming in, or you're playing games, or something like that, and it felt less like a hospital. Because you were there for a year, were you good all throughout the year? What would happen if somebody went in and they still very much couldn't acknowledge that they had an issue and they started? playing up or misbehaving or skipping meals what would happen then so how they do it um 
in the hospital I was in. So when you arrive, you get a very strict care plan, which tells you like your whole diagnosis, but then also tells you what's going to happen to you and what food you have to have and a real kind of plan of action. And they give you about a week to start eating and to start kind of adjusting to that program. And if you don't do that, you then get put on more bed rest. Um, and if you never, if you don't finish a meal, you always got bed rest straight after it. It was a bit, it was a bit like a punishment. Um, but then it didn't like sometimes it didn't really it didn't always feel like that if you just wanted a bit of space, which probably sounds awful. Um, so they had like quite a good way to kind of motivate people to get better in that sense by giving people rewards by letting their family come in. Um, the biggest threat for us in the hospital I was in is there's a secure eating disorder unit um, on the edge of London. And so we were told that if we didn't start to eat within a week, we would have to go to that hospital and we'd get we'd be like on 24 seven surveillance when we were there. And I think for most of us, that was probably kind of like the scaring <clears throat> tactic that we needed. Yeah, I think it's I think for some hospitals, they have much stricter itinerary around that. But for us, <clears throat> ours, it seemed much more relaxed, actually, in that sense. Is there anything, Hope, you think in society when it comes to eating disorders we don't acknowledge? I think we don't fully understand them. I think we still look at them and we're very judgmental about the various types of eating disorders. So anorexia is still viewed as the most glamorous eating disorder and it isn't glamorous at all. And people are still probably more accepting of that as an illness. Um and I think we need to kind of reshape that and reshape people's understanding of eating disorders so that actually all eating disorders get that level playing field because they are all really serious. And I do still think that we do look at them as a physical illness and look at all of the physical consequences. And quite often people might go into hospital and if they've got anorexia, they'll get refed. And then when they've got to a healthy weight, they'll get discharged from hospital as if everything's okay and everything's fixed. So I think it's that that aspect that needs to be explored much more so. I do also think that we need to start taking risks with it. And yes, it's it's hard when people um, have an eating disorder and uh, you you do want to exercise or that you have that kind of obsession with exercise. But again, it's that kind of thing that actually we need to start embracing and need to start looking at much more so. I really think we also need to talk about triggering points around the holidays. I mean, when it comes to Christmas, big events, birthdays, obviously you mentioned a wedding, getting married, where there is obviously a lot of food involved. How do you approach that season when it's coming up? Um, Good question. (laughs) So I guess Christmas is a good one to start with. Um, And... I I do still find Christmas quite stressful. I think I have quite a dysfunctional family in that sense, and I do find it quite difficult going home. And so how I cope with Christmas is I always have a plan in place around the food. I always know who from the family is going to be there. We always have backup food available. And me and my mum come up with quite a strict kind of stringent plan for that a couple of weeks before Christmas. Um, I think there is stuff that people can do better, and I think part of that is having conversations about it. So actually... Like around Christmas, people always feel the need to talk about how much food they've eaten or to comment on how much food is on their plate. Even if they haven't even got that much food on their plate, people always go on about it. And I think, again, it's about being mindful of those types of things. And actually, if you've got someone that you know who's got an eating disorder or someone who struggles with food in your family or your friends, it's about asking them actually what works for them and actually being mindful of that. I think also about 
being kind of understanding that just because someone is eating it doesn't mean they're not struggling and actually reminding them that you know they're struggling reminding them that you're there if they need to talk about anything and making sure they know that because the more we do that actually the easier it will be for that person to actually keep getting that support when they really need it um I also think like for me and they run up to like the summer and like I hate I do still hate wearing a bikini on a beach and I make myself wear a bikini on a beach because it's part of my recovery and it's kind of challenging myself to do it but I think sometimes it's about for me like reminding myself that what I see in the mirror isn't the reality and that everyone is different sized or shaped and that's okay and the more we kind of remind ourselves of that and remember that the eating disorder can manipulate what we're seeing in our head actually that always helps me to feel more in control of it again and more empowered to actually keep writing it. Of course. And you have mentioned your mum, you've mentioned your brother, so it seems like you had a very supportive network around you. What was it like for them having a daughter with an eating disorder? Really, really hard at points. Um, So... I'm one of five, um, so I've got, I'm right in the middle, so I've got two brothers and two sisters, and four of us are very close in age, and then my little sister's eight years younger than me, and so growing up, like, for everyone, it was, it was a real challenge, I think quite often, we, they didn't realise what was going on until I got diagnosed, and it was one of those things that people didn't fully understand again, but after I got diagnosed, and when I was an outpatient at CAMS, quite often my younger brother used to have to sit with me at breakfast in the morning and to make sure that I was eating and for him it was a real challenge because he didn't want to have an argument with me he didn't want to make it really difficult for me but at the same time he was trying to make me eat something and there were mornings when we would argue about it or I'd managed to not eat anything or I'd just leave the kitchen and it always put him in like a really really difficult situation um so I think for me it's been a massive actually issue within my recovery that I felt like I need to kind of apologize to everyone about my behavior because I know at times it was difficult and I would probably demonize certain behaviors around food but actually looking back kind of reminding them that actually that's the illness that was doing that and it's not me and whilst that doesn't always make it easier I think it helps people to understand actually a little bit more about what you're going through as well. Um, I think for my mum it was challenging because she was trying to keep like the family household together and trying to protect all my brothers and sisters from what was going on with me but at the same time trying to support me and she used to have to take me to the hospital every Tuesday afternoon for appointments and it was like as a whole of her Tuesday afternoon was taken up with that um and she had to put up with me being very difficult and shouting at her a lot and blaming her for things and even when I went into hospital and was admitted I pretty much blamed my mum for that I stood in the hospital doorway and shouted at her and told her I never wanted to see her again and we had to really kind of find a way to deal with that and manage our own relationship kind of throughout that because it, it wasn't it wasn't great for her obviously years have gone by now has it had a huge effect on your relationships with your family and friends have you managed to repair that damage or every so often do these issues crop up um, so I've with with my family, I, I think I have. So with my mum, um, when I came out of hospital, uh, we still weren't in a great place. But over the last kind of, I guess, eight years, we've like got much closer again. And we have a very different relationship now than we did when I was in hospital. And when I relapsed, my mum was fantastic, actually. She 
she knew what she needed to do the second time around to support me. And a big thing for me is I don't want people to give me sympathy. I didn't want people to come in and fix me, but I want to own my recovery and actually do that on my own. And my mum knew that the second time round, which really, really helped. Um, there have been points um, in the last couple of years where someone might have said something at a meal time or something might have come up and it would have caused an argument or kind of been quite difficult for me and that person. But when that tends to happen now, it is we do kind of not get over it, but we do find a way to talk about it and then move on from it. And something that's really helped that actually is the fact that because I'm a healthy weight now, because I do eat and I'm trying to stay in a really good place in my recovery, I am very vocal with my family about how I feel. So when I go home and I'm having a bit of a bad day or something, I will always make sure that I tell them because actually if I don't tell them, then I want, then I will have that tendency to want to show them that I'm not okay through not eating. But again, it's it's been a massive learning curve for me. And I think it's it's difficult because they've obviously seen me at like my absolute worst and that that kind of complete rock bottom and sometimes when you're in recovery it's it's hard because you think that everybody thinks that because you're a healthy weight now that everything's okay but actually it's a long-term illness potentially that someone will have to learn to live with and manage when you do have a bad day now is it quite triggering if maybe something hasn't gone very well at work or maybe you have had an argument with a friend do you almost subconsciously want to take control and these things kind of come back is it a triggering point what alternatives do you do do you meditate do you maybe go and do some light exercise what do you do instead um so I I I think firstly I remind myself that it's just one bad day um and actually I'm coming off so I take antidepressants um, and I have done for the last three years and I'm in the process of coming off my medication at the moment and last Monday I had a really really bad day with it and I woke up I was really struggling with not being on my meds and I didn't really know what to do with myself um so how I get through days like that is I try and kind of be kind to myself which I know sounds ridiculous and when people say that I'm like that's so ridiculous (laughs) but like I basically try and do something nice for myself so make sure I get up make sure I get dressed make sure that I always wash my hair when I have a bad day Um, And then I just take it quite slow that day, whether I spend an afternoon watching something on Netflix um, or doing things like that or going and getting a coffee. It really, really helps. And then reminding myself that one bad day doesn't mean that I've relapsed and I'm in a bad space with it. Um, I am also um, a Christian, so I go to church. And for me, actually, my faith aspect also does help me in my recovery because it kind of reminds me that I feel like I've got a purpose for what I'm going through as well. And that is something that, yeah, I guess keeps me going on those harder days. When you were an outpatient for a year, obviously you have many siblings. I mean, I have two and I feel like that's many already. (laughs) Did they know where you were? Were you literally just away for a year or did you come back at the weekends? What did that look like? Um, So... They did know where I was, um, but only because um, just before I went into hospital, we started doing a few sessions of family therapy. And actually, it was really important that for like my whole, I guess for the hospital, that they felt like it was important that my family knew where I was and what was going on. Um, And they did used to come and visit me quite a bit in the week um, at first, definitely. After I'd been in hospital for about four or five months, I was allowed home for like three, four hours at the weekend. And then eventually was allowed to overnight a little bit as well. And the more I did that, actually, the more I got to see them. So they did know where I was. I think 
I think the hardest thing for me was the kind of issue with school, actually. So I knew that my family knew, I knew they had some understanding. But actually, the weird thing for me was leaving school and being in school on like a Tuesday afternoon, and then the next morning not being in school. And that I really struggled with because I didn't know what people were saying about me. I didn't know whether anyone knew where I was. Um, and also then when you have anorexia, your weight changes. So then when I went back to school, kind of, I remember I was allowed to go back to school for my leaving, my leaving dinner and people, you go back and you're X amount of weight heavier and you know that everyone in the school will have talked about it and gossiped and it was an all girls school. So it's quite bitchy. And in that sense, I think I found that much harder to actually try and explain to people where I'd been and what I'd been doing. Did coming out of school for a while have an effect? Did you then be able to achieve your A-levels, go to university, or did it set you back maybe a year or two? Um, so I did my A-levels in hospital, actually. Um, and the only thing that it set me back on was I, I really wanted to do psychology at university, but I couldn't learn biology in hospital because there wasn't the facility to do that. So I had to change my A-levels slightly. Um, and because of that, I didn't get to do psychology at uni. I did sociology instead, which was fine. Um, but I think that was my only thing that made like was an issue for me. When I first went into hospital, I wasn't allowed to do any schoolwork at all. Um, and I only started doing the schoolwork again kind of in the February after I'd gone in, so kind of four four or five months later. And for me, it was hard work, but I wanted the distraction. And a massive motivator for me in my recovery was to actually get to that point where I could go to university. And it's National Eating Disorder Awareness Week coming up. What message would you like to leave with our listeners who are either going through something similar or know someone going through something similar? So for those people who are going through something similar, what I would want to say is that whilst the eating disorder gives you this sense of value, that sense of value is really short term and actually it's not a way to live your life and you might think that it's making you feel invincible and you can keep going but at some point it will catch up with you so I would encourage you to actually reach out for that support and get that support that you really need and talk to someone about it and for those people who are listening um kind of aside from those that have maybe going through something similar what I would say is to just remember that eating disorders come in all shapes and sizes and we all have a role in society to play in tackling the diet culture and to help people actually feel like they can talk about things. So even if you have an eating disorder or not, it's still so, so important to actually talk about what we're going through, talk about our emotions and our feelings, and if we're worried about someone, to reach out and support them too. Coming away from your eating disorder, Hope, you are now an author, a campaigner and a speaker. You're even a director of a speaker agency, what do you think are the key traits someone needs to have if they want to share their personal story via public speaking? Um, so I think you need to be uh, extremely driven and hardworking. So quite often I think people see the kind of fun side of what I do um, and what other people who do what I do. And it's, yeah, it's like the, the fun stuff is what we showcase on social media. Um but it's unbelievably hard work, um, particularly all the campaigning work that I do with the government. Um, it can be really difficult at times and it can be frustrating. Um, so I think you need to be hardworking and driven. Um, I also think you need to know what your boundaries are. And this is something that I didn't know for the first year of doing this and then had to really start to understand what that looked like and things like that. And for me, 
the boundary aspect came in the form of actually knowing the things that I did want to talk about and realizing that I couldn't fix everyone and knowing where to signpost people through it too and the final thing I think is actually just being conscious of your own well-being and whilst I talk a huge amount about recovery and the like amazing place that I'm in with it now I do still have to manage my well-being and just because I'm a campaigner in this space it doesn't mean that I'm 100% cured and I think when you do what I do there's that added kind of pressure that you feel like you should be 100% okay all the time so just knowing kind of what things you need to do to manage your well-being within that and looking out for those warning signs that might trigger up again but I would say that if you want to do it like do it I think for me going full-time into this space was the best decision that I ever made and it was a massive risk because I was working kind of nine to five for a massive organization doing public affairs which was really fun but I think now I'm doing something that I'm so passionate about and I really care about is just kind of I have a cheesy sound that kind of gets you up in the morning and it does kind of keep you going throughout your recovery too. We discussed this a lot on the podcast speaking and becoming a speaker did you notice a difference when you're book came out that you started speaking a lot more are you invited to speak or do you pursue those opportunities even now yourself um so I've been very lucky and um, because I've always been invited to speak at places um I think so the first year that my book came out I still worked full-time for another organization and was trying to juggle kind of speaking and the book and my job um and then after I went full-time doing this, I then got more and more, um, yeah, got invited to do more talks and stuff. And I think, for me, what's helped is probably kind of I have quite a big media profile as well, which definitely helps. Um, but I think there will be a time when I have to start asking people if I can come and speak. And when that happens, that's okay, because it's I guess it's, I'm passionate about this and I really care. And I think we all have, yeah, we all have a way to do it. For those starting out who want to make it full-time, being a full-time speaker, would you say it's three gigs a week, three a month? What's the reality of life as a full-time speaker? Um, so, very, very different. So Every day is completely different. Um, I spend a lot of time on trains, travelling to some very obscure places, um, and that involves kind of going, um, a couple of months ago, I did like a four hour trip um, up north, spoke for an hour and then did a four hour trip back. Um, so it is quite, it is quite tiring at times, um, but it is, it is really fun. And the thing that I love about it is actually meeting different people every single day, like actually being able to manage your time how you want to manage it. So if you work late one evening, you can get up later or you can kind of juggle what you want to work on or what you want to focus on um you get an idea and you want to do it and you can give it a go and kind of risk it and I think for me that's yeah that's the main thing um so I think I spend probably four days a week speaking um whether it's in schools or corporates or hospitals and then I have a day probably just doing kind of admin stuff at home um and then half a day or so where I'm doing work in parliament so meeting with MPs and talking to them about diagnosis and about eating disorders um, as well. Um, so yeah, really, really varied. And I think that that is obviously one of the reasons why I absolutely love it. Do you have your own website or are you on speaking agencies? Do you have an agent who, or do they just tend to get in touch with you directly? So I've got my own website and yeah, stuff normally just tends to come through there. Okay, and also hope you have won different awards. Is there one in particular that stands out? Um, I think probably. 
probably the first ever award that I won, actually, um, which was a Rising Star Award. And I, yeah, I still can't believe I won it at times. Um, I think, like, I, I didn't, I don't do what I do to go out and win awards. But when you do and you've worked so, so hard, it just feels amazing that actually people think that you're doing a good job. And I do have quite low self-esteem. So it kind of helps me feel a bit better generally as well. Um so for me, it was it was definitely that one. And I think, like, especially it meant a lot because I'd been going through quite a rough kind of year and been kind of working really hard and was feeling just like having a bit of a confidence blip. And then I won an award and it just helped me to just feel so much better about everything and to kind of get me motivated once more again. When going through the amazing articles and posts about you, we can see that the eating disorder was caused by abuse in the church but since even today you have said the church plays a major positive role in your life could you just talk a little bit about your relationship with spirituality now um yeah no definitely so I grew up going to church um and stopped going when I was about 17 I at that point I was I really struggled with the church I struggled with what had happened to me I struggled with the fact that I was really unwell and I had kind of all of those big life questions that I'm sure a lot of people have around why they're suffering, why God let stuff like this happen, why I wasn't being healed. Um, And I just completely walked away from it, actually. And then at the start of this year, like, not this year, as in like the start of 2019, (laughs) I'm like, where are we? we Um, I was going through quite like a rough patch with the court case around the sexual abuse and things like that. And I kind of kept, my way of coping with it was to basically just work 24-7, to try and manage that and then over the summer I realized I needed some extra support so I tried to get therapy on the NHS but couldn't because of the waiting times and so ended up going back to church um, because I kind of just wanted something to make me feel better and I thought I might as well give this a go see what happens Um, and then I ended up going on uh, a course called the Alpha course where you basically have 11 weeks Um, where you meet once a week and you basically just talk about spirituality. You talk about healing, you talk about suffering, you talk about why God does things, why God doesn't intervene. And I I went on the course basically because I kept getting nagged by my godmother to go. And after... um, after I'd been on the course, um, kind of, I think it was the eighth week, I decided that actually I wanted to become a Christian. And I know that whilst I'm probably not going to have like an 100% plain sailing relationship with God, I think for me, it it was just something that I knew must exist because of what I'd seen happening around the course, what I saw happen in church. Um, and yeah, since becoming a Christian, I definitely feel much better about life generally. I feel more at peace and yeah it was like a completely life-changing experience to be honest no that sounds really amazing it sounds great that you've actually got an outlet now and a great support system other than your friends and family who you can turn to if you need it and we have only mentioned because we've been focusing on your eating disorder we have only mentioned the abuse that you went through when you were recovering from your eating disorder did you feel that you were also recovering from the abuse or would you say in your head and your heart you feel that they're two completely different traumas and you've had to overcome them and heal very separately so I think they were massively interlinked 
but the problem with the service that I got in hospital and what's the service that I got was fantastic they didn't focus on the trauma-based side of things so they focused very much on the anorexia and the behaviors around it and so the abuse became something that I boxed up in my head Mm -hmm. and kind of ignored and I only started really processing it over the last year so I went back to therapy and now do trauma-based therapy um, and I'm actually given the space to really talk about yeah what it's been like what happened to me and I think what's been so interesting is I've learned so much about myself and the way that I've been since I got abused um, and even things like my relationships and my feelings about other people and the fact that I find it hard to trust people or I might self-destruct at times and all of these traits the traits of people who've been abused and I never could get my head around that and it was just things that frustrated me um, so what I would say if you have been through something similar it's about actually finding a therapist that really works for you and a therapist that can talk about it and wants to talk about it and giving you the space to really do that properly is just so so important no I can imagine and finishing on a high hope what is your vision for the future what do you have coming up and will you be publishing another book soon um, so I do want to publish another book, um, and I've got a few ideas in my head around the kind of stuff that I want to write about. Um, so yeah, I'll keep you all posted if I do do that. Um, but at the moment, my main focus over the next kind of six months will be on the campaign. So on the Dumb the Scales campaign, which is all about diagnosis um, in services and making sure that people are getting that support they need. Um, and with kind of alongside that, I'll be launching various resources to try and educate people much more on eating disorders and also um looking at making sure that actually there is the right training in place for all NHS staff so that when someone comes in with an eating disorder whatever someone's role in the NHS is they know exactly what to look out for they know exactly how to have that conversation and then they know exactly where to signpost that person to. Amazing and talking about books what are your five essential reads I say five it can be between three and maybe five that you would (laughs) recommend to our listeners or maybe even podcasts that you just love. Um, so one of my favourite books is the Fern Cotton book, Happy. Um, I read that over the summer um, and now it's by my bed constantly because it has various exercises in it to do, um, things around being grateful. It helps you to understand things that might help you to become more happy in life, but also to understand kind of the whole idea around happiness as a whole. Um, another of my favourite books, and there's actually two of these books which are I'm going to say quite similar, but I don't know if that sounds really rude, um, is, uh, and they're not mental health related either, actually, um, is The Tattooist of Auschwitz mm-hmm. um, and Silka's Journey. So they talk about Auschwitz and the aftermath. Um, and something I do find really interesting is history and particularly that time period. And so reading books like that, I always find very, very fascinating um, as well. Um, and I'm sure I think what my final or other favourite books are... Mm-hmm. Uh, Actually, what I've read this year. The other thing that I do read a lot of, um, which isn't really a book, um, but it is a lot of the Lonely Planet books. Okay. Um, so if you came to my flat, you'd see that I have like hundreds of Lonely Planet books everywhere. <laughs> um, and the reason that I like these books is because I first of all love, like, I'm fascinated by the world and different people's cultures and different people's stories. But also, when I was unwell 
getting and um, being able to go traveling again was a massive mm. motivation to me and actually these kind of books help me to keep going with that and actually remind me that I want to keep traveling that I want to see the world and I can't do all of that stuff if I let that kind of eating disorder part of my brain suck me back in when you started the dump the scales campaign did you turn to any resources or tools what was the very first day like when you decided you were going to go out and start this campaign what was the first maybe day or week looking like for you um so I actually came up with the campaign um sitting in a pub with some friends (laughs) and was like was like I want to do a campaign I was like I'm trying to work out and then I was actually like this is a no-brainer like I know exactly what I need to campaign on um so I did that um and then when I had like a bit of a rough outline of what I wanted the campaign to look like what I was calling on the government for um I then emailed change.org and asked if they had time to meet with me just to kind of talk to me a little bit about what I could do um and to be perfectly honest when I launched the campaign I had absolutely no plan in place I didn't really know what was going to happen. I didn't think it would do very well. So I thought it'd be, I thought I'd launch it. It would get like 10 signatures and that would be it. Um, So once I launched it, I did contact some media outlets to try and get a bit of coverage. And after I got coverage for the campaign kind of pretty quickly, actually the campaign started to expand and like get bigger and bigger and more people getting involved with it and more people behind it. Um, And then after that, I contacted every single MP in parliament to try and see whether they would support the campaign and then basically met with loads of MPs and was was asking their advice on what they thought I should do. Um, I do have a public affairs background so I know a little bit about like how the government works, how the NHS works but for me it's been like a massive learning curve actually just doing the campaign and yeah it definitely I've, I've loved every I've loved most moments of it sometimes it's slightly frustrating um <laughs> But I have loved most moments. And I think, like, just making sure that I'm talking to the right people and asking the right questions. Um, And I have been, I think I've been quite lucky in that sense because the MPs that I've worked with have been very supportive about the campaign and are always willing to share their advice and tips on actually how I can make it more successful. What can our readers and listeners do next? If they come away from listening to this podcast episode and they want to get involved in the campaign, what can they do? Um, so please do sign the petition, first of all, and share it across your social networks um, or share it with people that you think might be interested. Other ways to get involved is if you've been through something similar, like do feel free to share your story. I'm always looking for more case studies um, and more stories um, so that I can just keep showing the government and also the media actually the impact that turning people away from services is having on them. Um, and then the final thing is to um contact your local mp around it um and to actually make sure that your mp is seeing this as an issue and on the campaign website there's um a lot of information around that and a lot of information around letters that you can send out and drafts of things as well and lastly hope what is the mantra you live by or your favorite quote the mantra that i live by is that however i'm feeling today if it's really rubbish, that feeling will eventually pass. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, it's it's really crucial to remember that because there are some days when I feel so, so awful and I don't feel great and I don't think I'm going to get through the day. And I've been at that point where I have felt really suicidal at times. And it's that that keeps me going and reminds me that actually these feelings will pass and tomorrow is a completely new day.
Amazing. Okay, well, thank you very much for that hope, and I will speak to you soon.